Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to focus on 16, verses 16 to 40. Last time we looked at the prodigal son, how the prodigal son hit rock bottom. This time we're going to look at a jailer. We're going to look at the jailer's conversion, how he also hit rock bottom, repented and believed and was saved and then baptized. Today we're going to look at the jailer's conversion in the city of Philippi. This all started because Paul had a vision. It's called the Macedonian vision. He had no intention of going to Macedonia, but he was instructed by the Lord that he must preach the gospel to them because there was a need. And this set into motion the entire book of Philippians. Philippians, which is focused on joy. This was the introduction. This was a catalyst, if you will. And in the simplest matter today, my intention is to give you insight into how Paul, the great apostle Paul, handled when he was dealt a curveball. When things happened that were out of, his, out of his control, that just totally ruined all of his plans, how did he deal with it? That without the Lord's miraculous intervention, he would have died. He would have been dead in that jail where they threw him after flogging him, after beating him. But the Lord had another plan. Cornerstone, my intention here is to really be encouraging, being uplifted, uplifting everyone, but also for preparation. We have to be grounded in our theology. We have to be grounded on God's promises. And we have to be attentive to God's sovereign will in our lives. Paul found his sovereign calling. Through this text, we're going to see that how much did the Lord accomplish when his servant Paul was obedient. And we too, in the same manner here today, we're called to be obedient. Because I assure you that the lessons that Paul learned are timeless. They applied 2,000 years ago, and they're also very pertinent to us today. I understand this is 24 verses. This is a lot, and I know it's a lot. But I promise you, there's a, something very special. There's a Bible knowledge. There's something, there's a payout that if you stick with me, it's going to be worth it. That's a life lesson that you can keep for the rest of your lives. So join with me as I read Acts chapter 16, starting verse 16. It's saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned away and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into their marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 15. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour in the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Verse 35. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into their prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This is 24 verses. I know it's a lot, but we, also, we often focus just on verses 30 and 31. When there's a key question that most of us have memorized, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas give them a short summary statement of the entire gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We often look at this single verse and we look at it as if this is an ideal evangelism situation and we, we say that's not how, we evangel- how our evangelism goes. Sometimes it's much more complicated. But what we need to look at today is what happened before and what will happen after. Today we're going to look at the entire sovereign chain of events that took place for that specific encounter with the jailer. So let me start with the roadmap for today. We're going to look at four convictions of a faithful Christian. Four convictions of a steadfast, faithful, and fearless Christian. This text is powerful and it is convicting. That God is most glorified when his children are faithful to his will, no matter the situation. When we are steadfast under attack, when we are steadfast in trust, when we are steadfast in worship, and when we are steadfast in our ministry. These convictions are timeless. They were, there are examples from the great apostle Paul. They're for us And we're going to see also that these are for our children. And this is key. No matter the situation we find ourselves, we must rest and be content with the inner knowledge in our heart that nothing can happen outside of God's permission and prescription. Because we will see today as we live out our our Christian life, the Lord will challenge our faith. I promise you, it will happen. All we are called to do in return is to be steadfast and faithful without grumbling. And Christians must be fearless, and I will say ready, willing, and able to give the gospel when the opportunity presents itself. So look with me at verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit from fortune-telling. Paul now finds himself in Macedonia. This is the start of Paul's ministry in Philippi. And they weren't going anywhere special. They were just going to a place of prayer or a synagogue or a place of worship. To do what? As Paul often did, just to go preach and teach the Word of God. It's as if we left our home this morning, sat in our car, drove to church, parked the car, and then on our way to church, something happened. And indeed, something happened. And I say it happened to a group of missionaries, because I don't know if you noticed, there was a we. Who is that we? 
The we makes it personal. The we makes that this is a first-hand eyewitness account of this story. And the we makes it clear that it's a group of Christians. It's a group of missionaries. Here specifically, the we is Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. They're together now. They're serving as a group. But as the story progresses, two of them will depart, and it'll, it'll only be Paul and Silas. And a slave girl having a spirit of divination. There are three things that are striking. First, it's a slave girl. This is not a free girl. Luke wants to make it clear. She belongs to her masters. And the Greek text makes it clear. The masters considered her as property. Nothing more than property. I have two girls, and every time I read this, it's, it's shocking. And it should be shocking. The second thing, she's a psychic. She has a spirit of divination. And we know that this is an evil spirit of divination. This is a, this is a girl who was possessed by a demon. And this is sin. We read this in Deuteronomy 18.10. And this is the key text to anything which is divination. Deuteronomy 18.10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. You see, this girl was able to foresee the future and to somehow, through this demon possession, explain mysteries. Thirdly, we know that she is exploited by her masters. We know that there is uh, exploited, manipulated, and also not just for small profit, but it's written for much profit. In business term, she is the profit center of the whole enterprise. This demon-possessed girl had the ability to interpret mysteries and supposedly to foretell the future. And historically, we see great pagan generals would come to such demon-possessed people to get any insight into their battle, any advantage they could get, and they would obviously pay much money for it. And this demon-possessed girl, she's, we see in verse 17, she is following after Paul and us. And she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Notice here, it's still the us. We still have our four missionaries. And this following should be viewed as hounding. It's as if everywhere they went, she was right behind them. And she's screaming. She is shrieking at the top of her voice. And she's saying something. What is she saying? These are men. Uh, are, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. At first glance, you may think this might be a compliment for the faithfulness of Paul. It really isn't. It's far from it. You see, this is an evil spirit. And God never uses anything evil to proclaim or to magnify his name. God is holy and he is separate from all evil, and completely different from his creation. And God will never use someone or something to declare his righteousness. Paul and Silas and the rest of the missionaries were under attack by this evil spirit. And this was going on for many and many and many days. And it happened that on one day, after Timothy and Luke left, and now it's only Paul and Silas, the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, greatly annoyed, turns and, said, and says to the spirit, and not the girl, but specific to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. This was an apostolic strong command with great emphasis. Please don't miss this. This is not the apostle Paul read with rage exploding at the evil spirit. This is learned Paul. This is not 
rash Peter. Luke here is not highlighting Paul's anger, only his apostolic authority. Paul is an apostle, and he could have exercised or um, he could have commanded this evil spirit to be removed at any time he wanted. So why didn't he? Because he knew there was going to be consequences. He knew there was going to be uh, retaliation because this was a profit center. This was the cash cow of their entire enterprise. He knew there was going to be a revenge tactic because you can expect, and we know this today as well, if you eliminate someone's sinful source of income generated from someone, a demon controlling a person, there's going to be consequences. This is like someone who is in a work environment and their boss is asking him to do something illegal. And the Christian says, no, I can't do that. It's a firm, no, you can't do that. And you know deep down inside, you're going to go back into your desk and you're going to pray and you're going to say, Lord, help me because now I'm all alone and the Lord is faithful and he will help you. In one quick apostolic authored miracle, he performs an exorcism, Paul, of the demonic spirit. And Paul is a great example of Christians under strong spiritual attack, the likes of which we will never witness. Paul understood that God's grace was sufficient for all and continued to be faithful in his submission to his will. And the persecution came. The persecution that followed this single action was very quick. But we see that Paul, even when he was attacked, he was steadfast. Paul had counted the cost of evangelism and understood that his calling was more important his compassion for sinners and the importance of, this, of the gospel was so much more important that he counted nothing. He had to be faithful. Their compassion was the, for the lost was greater and they had realized the problem and focused on the promises of God and the power of Christ. And that's where God brought them. Paul was steadfast under attack. And now we're going to see that Paul is steadfast in his trust, in his deliverance as well. Because Paul did not take matters into his own hand, but stayed with his Christian convictions. He stayed within his Christian boundaries following what happened. Verse 19 reads, But when the masters saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Imagine here they're being manhandled and dragged them into the marketplace. This would be the Agora market in Philippi, before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, or the chief rulers, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up against them, This literally means a crowd joined them in attacking Paul and Silas. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. The first thing I have to say is this is just another example why miracles do not produce faith. Miracles never lead someone to salvation. It is only the sovereign grace of regeneration that can penetrate man's free will or his ability and his responsibility to continually choose sin versus the Savior. Only God can open the eyes of the sinner to the glory of Christ. Only God can overcome man's natural resistance to the gospel by shining light into his darkened heart. The proof is seen here. In this small city, an undeniable miracle happened, but nobody cares. Nobody cares. The masters, the the slave girl's masters, don't stop and ask, hey, Paul, by what authority did you do this? And also her masters, the slave girl's masters, cared nothing about the girl, that she was tormented by this evil spirit. And now she is free. They're just furious. 
that they can no longer pr- provide for their customers a service that permitted them to receive payment. So they physically drag Paul and Silas to the magistrates and they give a false charge because the official charge is what? It's pure criminal defamation. Their accusation are based on Roman patriotism and anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism. The the masters are hypocrites, if I were to say it simply. Because they never mention anything about their true grievance, their loss of revenue. And this whole proceeding is just a sham because the accused never even gets an opportunity to open his mouth. Because all he needed to say was just, I'm a Roman citizen. But he never even gets that opportunity. And the chief magistrates, in verse 22, tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Things escalated very, very quickly. Now, this is a Roman flogging. Flogging oftentimes consisted of whips or bundles of rods tied together. Both are very painful. Both could be very deadly. Our missionaries, practically naked, now would receive punishing hits directly onto their flesh to maximize pain and punishment. They were beaten mercilessly by trained specialists who would take sadistic pleasure in their work. And please don't think that these these blows would be directed only on their backs. There was no part of the body, including the eyes, that were off limits. And the magistrates are not done. They ordered the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Commanding the jailer, in verse 23, to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and then fastened their feet in stocks. For the first time now, Luke introduces the jailer. This man clearly understood the seriousness of the situation and the order that was given to him. That's why he throws him into the inner deep cell. Because he knew if, uh, if anyone would escape, it would be death for him. And as if it's not secure enough, they are set in stocks. These would be large wooden blocks, blocks around the prisoner's ankles, making it impossible for them to even turn around and to move. And that's where they are. And the likely fate of prisoners entering prison is death. You see, Paul had no clue. He had no understanding of God's will that he would ever leave that jail. Because back then, when you would enter prison, there was no assurance of getting out. Several things could kill you. Other prisoners can kill you. Lack of sanitation, sickness. It was freezing cold. And then there was no food, unless if a family member or a friend would actually bring you some food, which was definitely not the case here. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help and think about our fellow TMS Canadian pastor who was also thrown in jail for simply opening church, Pastor James Coates. He was was arrested on Monday. I don't know personally Pastor James Coates, But Friday, I was talking to his associate pastor, and they were preparing for this. And they were prayerfully considering, do we hold church? You see, they too had considered the cost. And I know some of you here might be saying, what is the Christian's obsession with jail or prison? I assure you, Christians have no tolerance. They have no obsession for jail. But when you're faithful... And when you're steadfast, sometimes the Lord calls you to do something. And our very own Nathan Buzinitz wrote something that I think best summarizes um, how we could explain to our children 
or to someone who might just not get it. Nathan Buzanitz wrote, We stand with Pastor James Coates. And he writes, and I quote, The pages of history are filled with examples of faithful believers who resolutely obeyed God, even if it meant facing severe repercussion from men. When Daniel refused to stop praying, he was thrown into the den of lions. When the apostles refused to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus, they were arrested and scourged. When the church father Polycarp refused to renounce Christ, he was burned at the stake. When the Puritan John Bunyan refused to stop preaching, he was put in jail for 12 years. Can you imagine that? 12 years. Many other examples could be given, but the point is clear. To obey God rather than men is not always easy. And no one who reads their Bible can honestly say that being a Christian doesn't have a cost. God has set up the Christian life to be difficult because it is His intention that we may be fully and completely dependent upon Him. Listen, Cornerstone, our trust will be tested, but our faith must never be broken. And Luke is writing here to guide you when you yourself find yourself in a difficult situation. The Christian, no matter the case, no matter where he finds himself, must remain the salt and the light of this world. And we must keep our focus and gaze upon the cross and remember our Lord's suffering and never forget that God is faithful. Coming back to Paul. Because just a few hours ago, he was on his way to preach when all of this happened. And now he's sitting in a bloody, he's sitting bloodied in a maximum security cell, prison, incapable of any movement. And this is the same Paul who in Acts chapter 8 was doing the very same thing to other Christians for their faith. And now he finds himself in that situation, contemplating what happened. How do you get through such an ordeal? You must be spirit-dependent. This is where we must be steadfast and trusting in the Lord. And we must be able to see past the horrid, terrible situation and know that we are dressing or we are writing a testimony for other Christians to come after us. You live out your biblical theology. And you know that there has to be purpose in providence. There's always purpose in suffering. And Paul may have very well thought that this was his end. He was going to die in a cell. But here in Acts chapter 16, that God, we see that God had orchestrated something so much more. Because he had orchestrated an opportunity for Paul and Silas to talk to the jailer when he had, when they had his entire and complete attention. Paul understood that God is most glorified when when his children are faithful in the submission to his will, are steadfast under attack, steadfast in trust, and now we will see are steadfast in their worship. Because the love that Paul and Silas had for their Savior overshadowed anything that, was, that they were living out right now. Verse 25 reads, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise, to the, and the prisoners were listening to them. This world is very evil. I think everyone would agree with that. We look at the example of Paul and Silas and we see that let nothing lessen your joy of worship. Let nothing lessen your love for Jesus. It is midnight. It is pitch black. And they're surely tired, but their hearts are still filled with their Lord. 
Paul's heart is not hardened. There's no bitterness. There's no grumbling against God. They're worshipful, even after everything that happened. And in the Greek, it literally reads, they were praying, and while they were praying, they were singing hymns of worship. Everything was just intertwined. This is an example of beautiful, God-honoring worship. And I just can't miss the opportunity of, of this teaching moment. I've, asked, I've had this question asked so many times throughout the years. What does, a, what does it take to have a good worship song? What is this Bethel? What is this hill song? This is, this is what someone told me I like to. I think it really, it really works. All I would say is if there's a song that you keep hearing on the radio, search for the lyrics and just read it and take a step back and say, how much theology is really in this song? How much, what are the words saying here? Is it just emotions when you remove the catchy tunes or the music behind it? Do it. And then go and read one of the old Christian hymns that have stood the test of time and compare the two. And I promise you, once you do it, it's just, you'll never go back to singing something that's flippant. Because as Christ, Christian worship can never be the same as anything as secular concert or secular music. We have to be different because the world is watching us. And in this same example, the world is watching or hearing Paul and Silas. Because scripture says in verse 25, the prisoners were listening to them. The entire prison was listening to their singing and their worship and their prayer. Imagine the acoustics of this stone prison must have made for an incredible sound system. They were in the inner part of the jail and the echoes would be vibrated through the stone walls and they would be brought forth with their hearts of overflowing gratitude and joy. This is the same apostle who wrote in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And he is proving it here. But God does not forget his children. And verse 26 reads, And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And notice, everyone's chains were unfastened, meaning that every single prisoner at the same time was now free. When you look at earthquakes, and I know here, I guess the context is is a little different, but I don't, I don't care where you've grown up. When an earthquake goes a little longer, you stop and you think, and when you look down and you realize the whole earth is shaking, God has your attention. Historically, earthquakes are not uncommon in the region of Philippi. But Scripture qualifies this earthquake as no ordinary earthquake. It is a great earthquake meaning that it was mighty and powerful and it was localized. And it hit the foundations of the jail. This had been such a powerful earthquake that the entire walls fell and the chains which were bolted onto the walls were now set free and these prisoners could escape. And the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors. And when he saw the prison doors, he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners escaped. But our jailer had an appointed divine meeting with God. You see, he wakes up. He's terrified. He realizes what happened. He assumes the prisoners have escaped. He assesses the situation. He understands the consequences. This is a death penalty. That he is fully and completely liable himself. He weighs the pros and cons and decides it would be better for him to take his own life than to be scourged and flogged by the same men that beat Paul and Silas and then he would be administered the death penalty. So he draws his sword and is about to kill himself. He's about to commit suicide. But Paul who has a clear understanding of Roman law, realizes the situation, 
and anticipates the jailer's actions. And he quickly offers the single only response that would prevent the jailer from taking his life. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he, the jailer, verse 29, called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. What is the jailer in his initial question? What is he really saying? We have to understand there's a lot of fear and superstition in that question. Because an earthquake in pagan or Roman culture was viewed as a punishment from their false small g gods. But the Lord was summoning this sinner out of his spiritual death and blindness in order that he may receive the gospel and that he would have a changed heart. Because you see, and please mark these verses down, only the word of God can enable someone to repent and believe. It's not the commentaries that save you. It's not the study notes in your Bible that saves you. It is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 118 reads, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." so that you may proclaim the excellencies of God, and this is the key, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Only God changes the sinner. The sinner left by, left himself will never reach out to God. And here the jailer asks, Sirs, and don't read too much into this. This is just a polite statement. This is a polite way of saying, Gentlemen, What must I do to be saved? The jailer has come to his end, and now he's grasping at Paul and Silas for some type of hope. And the next statement is echoed through all of Christian history. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is a summarized statement of the gospel, but it's not only the gospel. It's not only what Paul and Silas mentioned or or proclaimed. Because in verse 32 we read, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. We understand that the gospel equation is simple. It's grace alone and nothing else must be added. And Paul calls on the jailer to look upon Jesus for salvation. Jesus is the, only, is the only way for reconciliation. It's the only way for humanity, sinful humanity, to be reconciled with God. And this gospel message arrived just at the perfect time, just before the prisoner was about to take his life. And then after, what does the jailer do? Something very Christian. This new child of Christ, takes them that very hour, washes their wounds, and immediately is baptized. He and his whole family. You see, Paul and Silas in that prison would have never received food. It was not the jailer's responsibility to feed him or to take care of him. He was only there just to make sure that they never escape. But now, as he is born again, he has a heart of compassion And he takes care of Paul and Silas. And he's baptized. He's baptized because this is in obedience to God's word. He is immediately baptized. Verse 33 says, The jailer was baptized, he and his entire household. And something interesting here, the word household does not necessarily mean his wife and his children. Because many people take this text and use it as a proof text for infant baptism. That's not true. We're going to look at baptism in a few seconds. Here, household 
is anyone who was commissioned by the magistrates to help the jailer oversee or manage the prison. Because what we see right after is a clear example of biblical baptism. This is in accordance to Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we also had seen in Acts chapter 2, verses 37-38. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, this is Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is clear. Baptism is water baptism by full immersion, and it is reserved for believers only. Because baptism is an outward profession of faith that demonstrates what the Holy Spirit did inwardly in your life. Infants can never profess Christ. They can never, what they can do, I'm sure some of you have heard they, they can cry. They can cry for milk. But it's not a profession of faith. Here in Grace Community Church, we have many baptisms during the year. I just want to encourage you, if you have not been baptized, and if you are terrified or if you're scared of giving your testimony in front of three, 4,000 people, you can very easily just write it out and you can just read it. So I encourage you, be baptized. And this should be in obedience to God. Because that testimony which you have, that testimony, if you're forced to write it out, is not for you. It's for someone who desperately needs it, sitting in the pews. Paul and Silas are steadfast in their resolve to worship God. God is the one who gave them power and strength to praise even when it was difficult. Because Paul knew that he had to be steadfast under attack, steadfast in trust, steadfast in worship. And I will do it very quickly, steadfast in their ministry. Steadfast in their ministry. The story concludes with the magistrates ordering the release of Paul and Silas. But Paul protests by appealing to his Roman citizenship. Because you see, during the mock trial, if Paul would have just said, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, they would have never been able to flog him. Because flogging or scourging was only, was only reserved for slaves. The slave girl, which was released through Paul's command, that would be the only case for flogging. But Paul is a Roman citizen, and it would be illegal to strike a Roman citizen with a rod as any sort of punishment. And when the magistrates learn that Paul is a Roman citizen, they're terrified. Because now the situation is reversed. The magistrates come and beg Paul to leave. And Paul very quickly leaves. Paul and Silas leave. Because they were in a rush. They knew that there was a house church which they planted that was in need of their teaching. You see, Paul simply goes back to doing what he does. He simply goes back to his ministry. He's just steadfast in his ministry. He has to go and encourage the new believers in Lydia's house. Because we can see that this was a church or the beginnings of the church because the word brethren in the Greek literally means believers. He knows that there is a need of encouragement. He knows that through this example, through the persecution, through the punishment, others would hear of this testimony and would come and ask and he, through the power of the God's word, would be able to teach them and preach them. And Paul records the faithfulness of the Philippians in the book of Philippians. He mentions many by name, Epaphroditus, Clement, Euodia, and Syntyches. And he even writes in Philippians 1.5 that they were partnering with Paul for outside 
ministry. And their faith, the Philippian, the church of Philippi's faith, is forever recorded in Holy Scripture. I know I said a lot today. That was 24 verses. And I'm going to summarize it now. And then I want to give you something. Hopefully that will be very, very helpful. Today we saw an exorcism. We saw the removal of evil. We saw bankruptcy and outrage. False accusations, a double arrest, a mock trial, a vicious beating and false imprisonment. And through all this, we saw a trusting attitude, worship, biblical worship, a miraculous localized earthquake, a suicide that was prevented, a general call, a gospel call to the jailer, an effectual call by God where there's new birth, a regeneration, a conversion, and then obedience by baptism. Paul's release, and then Paul who returned back to his ministry. I don't think anyone can say we didn't cover a lot. But did you know there's a parallel, there's a parallel account of this whole story in the book of 2 Corinthians. Please, if you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 7. 2 Corinthians verse 11, chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. This is the great Apostle Paul writing about his personal experience as an apostle. He is defending his apostleship. And he is, in PowerPoint or in point form, he is enumerating his hardships. That I was in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. And it goes on. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Did you get the parallel account? We often read this and we say, we're shocked at how difficult the Christian life is. But if you look closely in verse 25, he writes, three times I have been beaten with rods. The entire account which we did today is just one out of the three accounts where he was beaten. And this does not account for all of the other things, all the hardship, all the pain that he went through. When Paul entered prison, there was no guarantee he was ever going to go out. But what did he do? He rejoiced and he worshipped. Let nothing stop you from being a Christian. Sometimes we need to take a step back and have a different perspective and look with hindsight how the Lord was faithful in our life just to give us a new understanding of where we are for us to continue to be steadfast. This was the life of the great Apostle Paul who understood that, that God is always in control of his creation. He knew and most probably had memorized Psalm 115.3. God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And that nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. The purifying suffering that God sets upon the shoulders of his children are there because he loves us. And the Lord puts things into motion according to his will and for his glory. We will not understand why these things happen. We must be steadfast in our submission to these things. Because we know God is the victor and we have to keep our eyes when we are placed in such a situation, we have to keep our eyes on the cross. Through the example of Paul, we saw that he was steadfast, under attack, in trust, in worship and in his ministry. And he understood that no matter what happens, his relationship with Christ 
based upon the theology which Paul had, was more important. God has called us into a relationship of trust, and the believer must accept that this relationship is more important than fully understanding the why. We will never be able to understand this side of heaven, heaven, why these things happen, but we will trust in the one who has saved us. This was the real life story of Paul went through, and it was not an accidental parenthesis detour. And the same difficulty and the same trials that you are going through in your life are not a parenthesis or a detour. They are not done by accident. They are there for a purpose. So be attentive in how you deal with them and how you live your life through the trial. You must be fearless and you must be willing. Because you see, we as Christians have been entrusted with a task much greater than our own personal desire or preference. And this is why we have to be in full submission, in full understanding that this is God's will and that we must be steadfast. Please pray with me. Lord, I commit these people to you. Make them strong. Make them strong Christians who will tell of your glory to all the nations. That you are the one who made heaven. You are the one who has majesty and splendor and strength and beauty. That you are great and you are greatly to be praised. That we are here today and it is not by accident. That we have to be, that we must be found faithful in the same way that Paul was faithful and we must ascribe to you all the glory that is due. Help us to be fearless so that we may not be moved by this society, by the weight, the noose, which is around our necks, which is getting tighter and tighter. Let us not be moved. And if there are here today someone or some that still do not know Christ, please open their eyes in the same way that you opened the jailer's eyes in Philippi. May the Spirit draw them to you and give them a transformed life. Finish the message in our hearts, and it is through Jesus' name, the precious and matchless name of Jesus, that we pray all for his glory. Amen.